We have quite a bit to get through this morning. First thing I want to say is um, just a reminder from last week that we are doing kind of this two-part like series within a series, this uh, section of wolves and false teachers within the church and, and what to expect and how, how to be ready for it. Um, and so, Everyone, can I just a bit more down, uh, or like a bit less, I mean, like a bit more down, but a bit less. <laughs> um, where was I? Oh, yeah, so we're, we're doing this little mini-series in Second Timothy where Paul's talking about uh, the danger of, of false teachers, wolves within the church. We need to be ready for that. We need to be aware of that. And we need to be able to recognize how do these things creep in, and really, um, what is the involvement between the world and the church, if any at all, with, um, with these false teachers? So last week, we focused more on people who bring in like false doctrine, and they try to uh, speak about false doctrine and uh, false teaching, misinterpreting scripture, right, for the purpose of leading people astray. And that's certainly one way that wolves and, and false teachers um, enter into the fellowship and, and lead people astray. But um, I would say this other way is um, even more dangerous in a lot of ways. And, and we're going we're gonna to talk about um, currently how we can even see this affecting. But the way that false teachers also tend to get into the church with almost a, a more um, sinister kind of wolf in sheep's clothing that's, that's harder to recognize is by um, spreading false character. By, by making disciples of not just false teaching, but of bad character, of bad morals. And really what that comes down to is what they try to do is to get people to doubt God's word, try to get people to doubt the sufficiency of God's word in the way that they live their lives. So not just in what they believe theology-wise, I mean, obviously everything is going to be affected by what we believe, but not just what we believe in our theology, but also how we live our lives with ethical behavior, with our character, morals, things like that. Even how we... Um, react to the world around us. So let me pray for us. And I have more notes than I know what to do with, so I'll probably move kind of quickly, and then I'm, uh, you know, Lord, just help me to, to uh, speak what is right. So Lord, I, I lift this time up to you now. I pray, God, that your scripture would be what shines forth this morning. It would be your word that teaches and convicts our hearts, God. But I pray that we also recognize that we are, not, uh, we are not living in a world that is unaffected by living contrary to your scripture. That we see wickedness abound because we are a people who have turned away from you. I thank you, Lord, that you have, you have given us your son, that you have saved us out of that darkness, 
but we still wrestle with our flesh and blood. We still wrestle with old thinking. And so I pray, Lord, for each and every one of us here this morning that our minds would be conformed to the Scriptures, Lord, that our minds and our hearts would be conformed into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, that our thinking would be renewed by your Word so that we can live a life that is acceptable and pleasing to you, able to discern your will and your ways, O Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a world that is turned from God. And that's not a statement of the century, right? There's nothing new or radical about that. We live in a world that has turned from God. But the more that the world turns from the Lord, the more that the world um, is filled with a rejection of God and His Word, the more that we will see that the world will be filled with sin and foolishness and hatred and violence and injustice and death. For those of you who are paying attention at all to the news this week, we see that all around us. George Floyd was murdered this week, and the majority of our country bore witness to it. And the world does not know how to handle it. And many Christians are just as oblivious because there's little to no biblical discernment to see that all sin and injustice in the world and how to respond to that. And even when Christians many times do respond, it's, the response is inconsistent. It's inconsistent with the world, word of God and reflects more actually of how the world thinks about justice, how the world thinks about correction, how the world thinks about righting wrongs and what to do about it. And the most obvious place to see this is on a social media outlet like Facebook. We see not just from this last week, but from weeks prior and and months prior and years prior where we see injustices happening in our country and pain being built upon pain and division being built upon division that so many Christians are still trying to find worldly answers to these problems. And when Christians try to find worldly answers to these problems, it's just as wicked. It's just as sinful. And so, so many people try to find through politics or worldly philosophies mixed with Christian ideas or media outlets or the experts with no biblical foundation or even mob justice to try to correct the sin and wickedness that they see around them. But the problem goes much deeper than that. The problem that we have to recognize is we have bad character. We all have bad character. In fact, we have such bad character that 
bad character starts to look like good character. And when pseudo-justice starts to look like justice, because, hey, at least that's something, and the world calls good evil and evil good, and the church, so plagued by deceit, is willing to settle with it. Not good, but perhaps better. And then when Christians actually stand for what is true and stand for what is good and try to stand on the sufficiency and the answers that come from the Word of God, they're seen not as biblical, but radical or overly zealous or self-righteous. Unless, of course, it's something that the majority of the culture uh, is already for or against. I want to take us to a passage that is quoted all the time, and it should be. I'm going to click here, and it's a good song, but that's not the passage. There we go. Micah 6, 8. He has told you, right, the Lord has told you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, this is a long-suffering kind of love, and to walk humbly with your God. And this is good, this is, right? It's from the Bible, it's good, right? We, we recognize that. The problem is we don't do it consistently. That, that's the problem. The problem is not that, this, the, that we don't look at this scripture enough. Um, the problem is it tends to be used pretty inconsistently. So when we look at something like this last week or these last few months even, I would ask to those who posted about George Floyd, where were you last week when thousands of babies were being murdered? And where were your posts then? Or the, to those who run with Ahmad, did you crawl with David Shaw when he was gunned down by the police while crawling on all fours? Did you even hear of that? People complaining about false arrests at the protests, have they said anything about the false arrests of Bevelyn Beatty outside of Planned Parenthood yesterday morning in New York City? Or really, for any of this, will the majority of Christians do more than just lament on Facebook with a hashtag justice? The reality is, we should be indignant about all of these things. But most Christians will just go back to life as it is. Back to their comforts, back to their sins, until the next opportunity arises to virtue signal yet again. The reason why this is, is because when we look at a verse like this, and we're not consistent on it, what we're really saying is we want justice on our terms. We want mercy on our terms as well. And so we have a very inconsistent justice system that reflects a very inconsistent church. So the question becomes, how do we fix it? How do we fix this? Well, the answer is simple, but profound nonetheless. It's the gospel. The gospel is the only answer. And I'm going to go through 
how this gospel is the answer, and we'll look at why this is so important when we enter into a passage like 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9, where we have false teachers bringing in bad morals, bad character, bad discipleship to lead people astray in the church. So the first thing we have to understand in uh, learning the gospel um, is not just the basic foundations of if I say, what is the gospel, can you express that? But um, to understand this false dichotomy that's kind of arisen between law and gospel, we um, tend to look at what Paul writes about the law and the gospel, and we look at it in terms of salvation, and that's the context that Paul's speaking about. You cannot hold to the law in such a way that you will be saved by it. Instead, it will reveal what? It'll reveal your, your failures, your, your wickedness, because it's attesting to the character of a holy God, and that's the purpose of the law for salvation. But it doesn't mean that the law is not needed anymore. It doesn't mean that the law is any less the word of God than it was 2,000 years ago before the New Testament was completed. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. And in fact, not a jot or tittle from that law will pass. So, when, and, and the reason why I'm bringing this up is because when I say the gospel is the answer to something like what we witnessed this last week with George Floyd or what we saw with Ahmaud Aubrey or what we're seeing with abortion, yes, the gospel is the answer. The gospel is the answer, but how? Because I can't just throw it, I can't just say, well, the gospel is the answer. Tell people the gospel will help you out. How? How does the gospel address something like this so that as Christians reflect on what is happening in the world around us, we don't answer like the world? Well, the reason why the law is so important for this is because Christians, when we look at Micah 6, 8, what does he say? Do justice. But what is justice? What is justice? Justice is needed in our world. Justice is needed within our church, but according to whom? Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faintly bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands will await expectantly for his law. It is the Lord who establishes justice. And it's through his, his life and death and resurrection that he has brought us to a place where we can stand with our God and God can still be just in forgiving us because the Lord has established what justice is. Now I say this to understand that the gospel is not to bring people away from the law. The gospel is to bring people to recognize that there is a law and there is a standard by which um, the world is called to live by and Christians are called to live by. 
and to see the beauty of that law, not in that the law saves us, but that it's used to understand God's character and justice in a society that submits to his lordship. So something like two or three witnesses, that's from God's law, that's Deuteronomy 19. But that same idea is expressed in the New Testament as well by Paul, when you bring an accusation against an elder. It has to be on the basis of two or three witnesses. Why? Well, if you threw out God's law, then you wouldn't really have that. So obviously, Paul's not throwing out the law of God. There's elements of that law that need to be implemented. So when we look at something like, how do we establish justice? What is a just response? Well, God has told us. um, David uh, appeals to this in Psalm 19. If we can go to the next slide, because apparently this isn't working. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall, stand, shall be acquitted from great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So David is calling the law good for what it's meant to reveal, for what it's meant to correct, for what the law is meant to do, which is not save, but reveal, right? The law is meant to reveal. You want to understand holiness? You, you, you see God's character in the law. You want to understand justice and how God sees justice and wants justice? When you read something like Micah 6, 8, do justice, you, the law tells you this is what is just, this is what is unjust, We don't go by the world's standards of justice. We don't go by the world's standards of laws and precepts. Um, That's not how we define these things. We build them on the sufficiency of the word of God. We see this again in Romans 13.4. The government's job is to what? Wield the sword against evildoers. But how do we discern what an evildoer is? Who gets to make the claim what an evildoer is? Not me. Not society, not the world. The world doesn't get to pick and choose what's evil. We see what the world does when they pick and choose what is evil. They call evil good and good evil. So the command is for this government, this authority, when wielding the sword, which is capital punishment, against evildoers, what constitutes evil? What constitutes the use of the sword? What constitutes the use of capital punishment? What is the just punishment for an evil act? If we are not looking at the word of God, we will be inconsistent on that answer. If it is not the word of God that answers these questions, you could say one thing, I could say another. If it's not built on the word of God, then then who's to say you're right or I'm wrong? Now, 
Now, all these things can only happen consistently and correctly if people believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what, why it's so important that we have to say this, this foundationally has to be built and expressed through the gospel because it's only when we understand the gospel that we know how to understand the word of God correctly, that we understand the, the law correctly. And when people believe the gospel, the, the idea is that we're submitting our entire lives to our Lord Jesus Christ and his word, the way that he's revealed himself to us. And we dedicate our lives to serving him and discipling others to do the same. Anything else is just temporary. Now, why do I bring all this up for our text this morning? Well, it relates because, really, when the world has an idea of justice and how to respond to injustice, and, when, and, and, and the church reflects that world in the way that they think and respond, what we are seeing is what Paul is warning about in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9, actually taking place. When the world and the church are one... That's not a good place to be. That's not a good sign. It doesn't mean that, um, you know, the, you know if the world and the church are one and the fact that they say the sky is blue. Well, okay, that's, that's fine. Right? Except for the fact that the church would say, yeah, but the sky is blue for a much different reason than you say the sky is blue. Well, the same thing with something like George Floyd. The world and the church have come together and they can look at this and say, this is wrong. Something out of place and wicked has taken place here. The difference is the world and the church cannot respond the same way. The world and the church cannot be built on the same foundation as to why it's wrong and as to what is the correct response to that. And when the world and the church are one in that aspect, then what we are seeing is 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9 taking place which is that the character of the world has been implemented into the church so that the church starts to reflect the character of the world instead of the character of God. And the reality is, it's false teaching. It's wolves. And so the majority won't even see it happening. Most people won't even recognize it. So it relates because it's part of this false teaching. And when we look at these vices that Paul says here, so let's go ahead and we'll, we'll go to the passage. Paul says, but know this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Now listen, listen to this list, okay, as I read this. I think we're both on the NASB here, so we should be good. But listen to this list as I read it. And as you, 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 you see how much pings... How much clicks with, with our world today, and, and we'll get to us individually in a second here. We're, we're not off the, <laughs> we're, we're not, uh, what do you call it? we're not free to go yet. Um, but you, you listen to this list. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable. 
malicious, gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Let me read this list a little bit again, but with a little bit of interpretation, okay? Love of self, that's, you know, love of money, celebrating pride, celebrating violence, normalizing blasphemy, and using God's name in an irreverent manner, normalizing rebellion, especially against parents, entitlement, disrespectfulness, unable to be appeased, slandering the character of others, lack of self-control, untamed, thoughtless, loving pleasure instead of loving God. One of the things that we have to recognize when we read a list like this is that difficult times are here, like Paul says, because people have rejected the Lord and his word. That's it. Realize this. In the last days, difficult times will come. We are in the last days. These are the difficult, and I'm not talking about like, you know, 21st century America last day. I'm saying when Paul writes this, he understands these are the last days. And when people continuously reject God and reject his word, you will see these attributes, these vices grow. So really, we created the unjust culture. We are the guilty ones. Image bearers like George Floyd are murdered because of us. Babies are murdered because of us. Because of me, because of you. We have all made our own contributions to the wickedness and falseness of our culture. Each and every one of us have made our own contributions to the fallenness of our culture. And so now, this is what we are wrestling with. What has been allowed to come and thrive within the church? A love problem. Loving money, loving self, celebrating pride and violence, normalizing blasphemy, normalizing rebellion. Here's the thing. If I were to actually give examples of each one of these from the list, the majority would probably be like, I don't know what the problem is. In fact, if I were to give you an example for each one of these, the response from most people hearing me would probably be, is he a Pharisee? Is he not with the times? He's not loving? And then here's what I said was the most dangerous part earlier on in the sermon. I said, why is this so sinister? Because Paul says they will have the appearance of godliness. Let's just plant on that for one second. The appearance of godliness. What what comes to your mind when you think of somebody who who, who looks like a godly person what comes to your mind? Okay, now you think of that, you think that comes to mind, and that's what a false teacher is going to look like at times. 
That's what a, a wolf is going to put on as the sheep's clothing when he or she comes into a church and says, this is godliness. You're going to be like, yeah, that's godliness because it's going to appear godly. If they didn't appear godly, God, Paul wouldn't even have to warn about it. They would come in and people were like, that, no, no, that's not right. Out. You, you, can't, you can't be here. You can't be spreading that. But it appears godly. It appears wise. It appears charismatic. It appears kind. It appears loving. It appears helpful. It appears compassionate. It appears like it loves justice. It appears like at times it's a victim, like it's he or she has been the one who's been wrong because I'm just trying to be godly. Don't you see? Godly. And Paul's saying, it looks godly, but it's a wolf. So they appear godly in public, but it's the character that's corrupt. And so their lives actually deny the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul is saying when he says, um, uh, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. What does he mean by denying its power? It means the, the Holy Spirit's not actually working in them. He's not actually sanctifying them. This character that they've put on is, is a facade. It, it's, it's, it's fake. It's phony. And over time, as the layers are pulled back, there will be hints of the things from this list from 2 Timothy 3. The, the, this list, as you pull back the layers, you'll see, oh, hmm. That, that, that's that seems like to be a loving of self a loving of money a lack of self control there seems to be entitlement there and, and, and can't be appeased so it has the appearance of godliness they will look like solid believers it will look like they have compassion and empathy, but it's, it's really, it's just, it's empty. And so that's why Paul says these love problems will eventually start to creep out and be exposed. He says, like the false priests in Egypt, Janus and Jambres, who opposed Moses. So what does Paul say to do? He says, avoid these people. Avoid such men as these, for among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. What do these false teachers do? They don't come up and they don't rip off the sheep's clothing and say, I'm, I'm a false teacher, I'm a wolf. They don't come in and say, hate God. Hate your neighbor. Listen to the world. It's much more similar to Genesis chapter 3, where the devil comes to Eve. And if you read Genesis chapter 3, you notice that the devil is very, very crafty. Not just because the Bible says he's crafty, he is, but because the way he goes about convincing Eve to follow what ends up being her real desires and passions is through some deceit, but mostly truth. 
Did God really say? Let me ask, how many times has that question actually popped into our head when we don't want to listen to what the Word of God says? Did God really say this? Maybe I'm just interpreting this wrong. Maybe the person who's correcting me is just taking it out of context. Did God really say? And then what happens next? You won't die when you eat the fruit. You will become like God, knowing good from evil. Now here's what's interesting about that. You go to the end of Genesis chapter 3, and God is speaking to his heavenly council, and he says, man has become like us, knowing good from evil. So Satan was right. This is how wolves work. This is how they work within the church. And it says they capture, they destroy, well, first of all, they they slowly and secretly bring in this, this bad character, these vices. They destroy through deception. They destroy by mixing what is godly with what is sinful. And Satan is very crafty at doing that. And then he says, and what they do is they capture frail women or weak women. Now, women are the context here for Ephesus because that's the issue at hand in Ephesus right now. Um, That's why Paul writes 1 Timothy early on, and a lot of it is addressed to uh, the behavior of women and men. But um, even though the context for Ephesus is women, it doesn't mean that we don't also apply this to ourselves if you're a man. You're not above deception, right? I think we... Can agree on that? We're not above deception. So it's not weak as in a victim is weak. It's weak as in a... Burdened by sin, Paul says. They see the problems in the world and in the church, perhaps... So they're probably at this point, like I said, of clutching to anything that seems like it would be a solution. So now that we've kind of come full circle here, can we see the problem with the church addressing an injustice in the way that the world does? Because the world will come in and send wolves in, and they will say, you feel upset about this injustice, here's how we can solve it. And it'll be something other than the sufficiency of Scripture in correcting the hearts of men. It'll be societal reform, different politicians, better programs, better background checks for these police officers. But if it's not correcting the heart, you can put all these roadblocks in the way and the wolf, the, or sorry, I shouldn't say the wolf, um, the sinfulness of the world, the sinfulness of man will always find a way to creep through because those are just built on the ideas of man. And sinful man can't build ideas that lack sin. It's impossible. So this is what has happened when it comes to the issue of justice. And don't get me wrong. (laughs) I'm appalled 
by what happened. In the same way that I'm appalled about, you know, all the other things that I've brought up around in conversations with you or up here. But there's a way to go about doing something that looks radically different from the world. But it does require courage. It does require the ability to discern what is biblical from what is unbiblical and to be willing to speak up about it. Otherwise, the only thing that we're doing is just creating another inevitable collapse. So we may solve something like police brutality, and then, like weeds, something else will just pop up somewhere else. First Peter 4:17. That was the sound just let John do it at this point. First Peter 4.17 says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And what is Peter getting at here? He says, well, the church will always need to be refined by the word. And the church will always need to be refined and corrected before the world. God deals rigidly with his church because he has higher expectations because they have a new spirit living within them. Right? You have a new spirit living inside you. You have an ability to say no to sin. You have an ability to discern right from wrong. And so there's an expectation from God of how you will live. That's why Paul can say, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Because you're expected to. You're not lacking anything in godliness to keep you from being able to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. So Peter rightly can say here, God will judge beginning with his household. It reminds me of like when I was younger and growing up and my dad would coach some of my teams. And something he would always tell me is he expected more from me than he did from the rest of the team. Because if they goof around, it's one thing. If I goof around, it reflects on him. Right? It reflects on his character. It reflects on how he thinks things should be done. It reflects on how he teaches me at home. It reflects on what our family looks like. Well, that's the same thing here. Our character, the way we respond to things like this, reflects our Lord. Reflects how the world says God should respond. God thinks of this. And so if we are responding like the world responds, then the world looks at God and says, well, then I guess I'm good. So what do we need to do? Well, and I just have two quick things here. I know there's not a lot of on-the-ground application here, um, <laughs> but the goal is for the Lord to correct and convict our hearts and our minds but here are two things that we could be doing. One, we need to be committed to totally submitting ourselves, our minds and our hearts to the word of God and the sufficiency of scripture so that we can discern what is good and what is wicked, so that we can, as Romans 12, 1 and 2 tells us, be conformed to understand what is the will of God in a given matter. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. 
If we are not committed to the scriptures, then we will not be refined by the scriptures. We will not be built on the the word of God as our foundation, and we will simply be a, a, a people built on sand. And we will crumble like the world crumbles when we see something like this last week, and we will be in the same boat where we go, I don't know how to respond. Except for an anger. And then lastly, if we want to see, if we, if we want to see these vices that Paul lists here, if we want to see them out of the church, right? We don't want to see them in the church anymore. We want to be able to, to, to discern wolves when they come in and, 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 and correct it before they bring up their own disciples. If we want to see justice in the world, if we want to see correction and, and reform, then we must be preaching the gospel to ourselves, to the lost, and to the saved. It must be a continuous lifestyle of bringing the gospel to this fallen world and to those of us who are living in it and wrestling with how do Christians look here? What are Christians supposed to do to respond here? How do, how do I show love? It has to be built on the gospel. If we lose the gospel or if we think that it doesn't apply in certain situations or that we can mix the gospel with other things and we're not, we won't see change and we won't see wolves when they come in and we won't see these, these um, unholy ways of life building and building within the church and within our own lives as well. So my prayer for us in a church like the Oasis, in a, a, a small church like us, is that we would be front runners in this. Because we are dedicated not to the world's view of justice, but we are dedicated to bringing the gospel to the lost and letting the gospel correct and refine those it comes in contact with. And that, that when they are corrected and refined by the gospel and they come to church, that then they would be discipled to understand on a deeper level the word of God. And that godly wisdom and discernment would grow. And that the church would be purified and continue as purified this great commission. Again, this cycle of lost being saved, then being discipled and purified, then more lost being saved and discipled and purified. And that revival would spark in this nation. Then perhaps, then perhaps, we will see something a lot more closer to biblical justice. But it has to start with the church. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I I do pray that we would be uh, foundationally built on the gospel and the word of God, Lord, that we would recognize that when the world is in chaos around us, it does not leave us unaffected, Lord. That we are hurt by the pain of this world. 
that those are our fellow image bearers out there and that the desire of our heart would, deceive, would see them be saved, Lord. I pray that our views of love and kindness and justice and compassion would be built on your word. I pray that we would not look like the world, but instead look so radically different in a right kind of way that the world would see your godly character shining through the way that we as the church and, and we as individual Christians live each and every day. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.